Every once in a while, you'll meet an activist, atheist, or progressive Christian who actually attempts to use the Bible to silence and destroy pro-lifers. Because most of the pro-life movement is comprised of Protestants and Catholics, these activists try to use what we consider to be the very words of God to argue for abortion. <laughs> the only problem is they have no idea what they're talking about. But we do. So join us as we examine three segments of scripture that are popular for secular progressives to try to use against Christians to argue for abortion. Because don't you know, God and the prenatal Jesus just really love abortions. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to be releasing a few episodes um, this month while I'm on vacation. I'm on a mini sabbatical with my family, but we have uh, one a week that we want to air for you um, so you can remain engaged with this show and engaged with equipping yourself to be a voice for the unborn, to be an ambassador for the unborn, and to be what I love to call a pro-life ninja. So we'll have two or three shorter ones this month, one a week. Uh, please stay tuned in, share this. Give us a rating and review if you enjoy the show. It really helps us reach more people. The censorship has obviously been knocked up several levels in the last couple of years against conservatives and pro-life individuals. And so we want to reach as many people as we can, as effectively as we can, for as long as we're able to exist on these platforms. Now, I want to note before we jump into this episode that there's actually a even more favorite and popular Bible verse that woke Christians and secular progressives try to use against Christians and pro-lifers to argue for abortion. We're not actually going to address that one in this episode because I unpacked it and addressed it exhaustively in episode 115. 115, go check that out. That episode was called, Can a Christian Be Pro-Choice? And Debunking the Theological Case for Abortion. And that passage is Exodus 21. Exodus 21, 22 through 25. And so for a full-length treatment of that, go listen to episode 115. I think you'll enjoy it. That is the most popular segment of scripture used to try to argue for abortion. And if you listen to that episode, you'll remember that I showed it actually teaches quite the opposite. But I wanted to dive into three more because I actually got a text from a friend recently and then a text from another friend recently actually bringing up these Bible verses saying, hey, how do you respond to these when they're used from the Bible to argue for abortion? So I thought it would be worthwhile to do that. You may not have heard them brought up all that much. Maybe you have. Either way, it's important to have a good response and to be able to think critically about our faith critically about this issue and about scripture. And so the first one, and one of the more popular ones after the Exodus passage, is in Numbers. And so in Numbers 5, 11 through 31, um, God lays out a test for adultery for the Israelites to kind of test or check if a woman <clears throat> has um, committed adultery or not. I'm going to go ahead and just read the passage. It's a little bit lengthy. You can go ahead and turn to it if you're not driving. Numbers 5, 11 through 31. And uh, let's see what kind of case the abortion crazies uh, try to make for abortion from this passage. Okay, so Numbers 5, 11 through 31 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected... 
though she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, since she has not taken in the act. And if the spirits of jealousy come over him, and he is jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest, and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah uh, of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it, and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in the earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place her in her hands the grain offering of remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness that brings the curse. Okay, so he's created this bitter water with dust and I, and I think ink or something like this, um, if you kind of t study the text. And this is going to be like a test to see whether she's an adulteress or not, okay? Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's authority, be free from this water of bitterness that brings a curse, meaning it won't affect you if you're innocent. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen. Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings the curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when he has made her drink the water, then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive children. So there's sort of a contrast going on here, right? If part of her, her womb swelling and her thigh falling away seems to obviously refer to infertility, to barrenness, or maybe even a miscarriage if she's pregnant. And then that's contracted, contrasted with saying, if she's innocent, right, then she shall be able to conceive children. And it finishes saying, this is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Okay, so that's the passage. What woke left this and, and sort of um, what Christians are going to try to do is they're going to try to make the point that this somehow condones abortion, that this is an environment in where a forced miscarriage, which is 
I mean, would just be an abortion, is somehow permissible or condoned by scripture. The first thing we need to point out is the first rule of exegesis, okay? The first rule of exegesis when you're exe exegeting a passage in scripture is that just because the Bible records events, like records history, like, hey, this is what happened, it doesn't mean it condones events, right? Description doesn't necessarily equal prescription. Describing events does not equal prescribing events. Prescribing means ought to. You ought to do this. This is what you should do. Describing is this is what happened. This is what they did. It's very different. There's plenty of things the Bible describes, heinous acts sometimes, right, of violence that the Lord did not command or condone. So neither does scripture condone or prescribe them. It's merely describing them. So that's the first and probably most important rule of exegesis. And that rule alone kind of takes most of the firepower away from this verse being used, this section of scripture being used as a way to condone abortion. But this passage doesn't mean at all what the pro-abortion advocate or, or woke pastor or progressive Christian thinks that means. This is an account of how to deal with a woman who is suspected of adultery. If she is suspected, she will be brought before the priest who will give her this concoction of water mixed with wormwood. He proclaims a curse on it, and then if the woman is guilty of adultery, her womb will shrivel up and she will become barren. If she's innocent, she will not be affected at all, right? And will continue conceiving children. However, if you study the text, it's clearly not referring to an abortion. Now, it's true that if she's pregnant at the time that her womb shrivels up, if she's guilty, then she will miscarry. She will have a miscarriage because the lining of the uterus would break down, her womb would shrivel up, right? But what's in view here is not an abortion, nor the death of the child. It's the fact that she will become barren as a consequence of her adultery. What's being talked about is infertility and barrenness, not, not an abortion. Now, whether or not you think that's permissible, infertility and barrenness as a curse and consequence of adultery, that's really beside the point. I, I, we're just talking about what the text actually discusses. Now, remember, ancient views, ancient Jews viewed children as the greatest possible blessing and procreation as the greatest blessing, as the fruit of the womb, right? Your, your heritage, your posterity, in biblical times was really viewed as how you uh, pursued eternity, how you pursued immortality to live forever. Of course, the Jews still believed that they would be in heaven with God one day, but to, to live forever through your descendants was a very high social good and was pursued by nearly all of the Jews. And so barrenness, in contrast, was seen as a curse, as a sign of disgrace. And you see this throughout scripture with Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Barrenness, infertility, was seen as the greatest um, curse, the greatest sort of almost sign of shame for a woman at the time. So if a woman was guilty, given all that, if a woman was guilty of adultery, knowing that procreation was the greatest blessing, knowing that having children was the greatest blessing, then she would simply refuse to drink this concoction that, that could potentially cause your womb to shrivel up and then therefore would cause a miscarriage. And so given the possibility, even a possibility that a woman might be carrying a child at this time in Israel's history, 
would immediately lead to her just refusing to drink the concoction, right? And of course, her refusal to drink the concoction would be her admission of guilt as well, right? Like, I had adultery, I slept with this guy. I might be pregnant. This child is a blessing. I'm not going to drink that because it might cause a miscarriage. It might cause an abortion. But then as soon as she refuses to drink it, she's saying, well, because I don't want it to cause a miscarriage because I did sleep with someone else. Do you see? So even, if, even assuming that the woman might have been pregnant or was pregnant at the time of this test for adultery, she would just refuse to drink the water solution and therefore admit that she did commit adultery. If she was innocent of adultery, she'd happily drink it because according to the test for adultery that God lays out, nothing would happen if she was innocent and drank the concoction and therefore she would prove her innocence, do you see? So this is not a case of a priest giving an abortion <laughs> as the woke progressive Christian or atheist contends when they try to use this passage to argue for abortion. Rather, it's simply a way to weed out the guilty from the innocent. A guilty woman re would refuse to drink it. An innocent woman would drink it without any compunction or guilt because she knows that she's innocent. This was a specific case given to the ancient Jews by God himself. Just because a woman could possibly miscarry because of this specific tax, it doesn't mean that it allows us to intentionally kill innocent unborn children, right? It is a test for adultery, if, and it comes from the mouth of God. Remember, this is the Israelites living under a theocracy, right? We're not living under a theocracy. God was king then. I mean, he is the king of kings. He's still on the throne, but you know what I mean. The Israelites were directly responsible to God's laws that he was giving verbally to Moses, that he was putting on tablets, that he was saying, tell the people to live this way. We don't live under that kind of theocracy in a nation today. Now, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. This is the, the, probably the most Christian nation we've ever seen, which we can, need to continue to fight for. But it's not a theocracy in the way that the Israelites were living under. And so just because God tells the Israelites, use this test for adultery, even if it led to a miscarriage or an abortion, because she chose to drink the concoction anyways, it doesn't mean that that gives us permission to kill unborn children for any reason or no reasons at all. And so this passage doesn't mean what the pro-choice advocate wants it to mean, namely that the passage refers to an intentional miscarriage or an abortion. Rather, it's just referring to the intentional onset of infertility. You committed adultery, here's the test to see if you did. If you did, you will become infertile and barren, not... Um, we're going to make sure you're pregnant beforehand because we want to abort that baby. Oh, yeah. No, that's not what this passage is talking about. Secondly, even if this passage did mean what they want it to mean, that the curse symbolized by the dusty water caused an abortion, that would not actually prove what they want it to prove. Because even that interpretation, read in context, would not condone intentional prenatal infanticide, as is practiced by our country, our culture, and the abortion industry today. That would be one very specific circumstance where a miscarriage might happen because of adultery, not for abortion on demand for any reason or no reason at all. Thirdly, the drink is just, is just actually water, dust, and ink. It's not a drug that could actually induce a miscarriage. The, the drug does not make a distinction between the innocent and the guilty, right? There's nothing about that water and dust that goes, oh, you're an adulteress, right? It's like, no, and that wouldn't even cause a miscarriage. The water is a symbol that God uses to say, 
whatever happens to the guilty woman, it's God carrying it out, obviously, right? A little bit of dust and water is not going to cause a miscarriage or the womb to shrivel up. God's saying, here are human elements I'm going to use to, for you to sort of relate to in a more earthy manner because you're earthy creatures and you're here on earth and I'm up in heaven. And here's how you can test for adultery, but it's really God that's going to make the end results happen. Either nothing happens to the woman or her womb shrivels up and she's infertile and barren because of her adultery. Do you see? So even this dusty water wouldn't have even caused a miscarriage or an abortion as the woke progressive claims it would and therefore uses that point to say that this is just like an abortion. Lastly, or fourthly rather, God has the right to take life in situations where we do not. So let's grant the woke progressive Christian who thinks this passage condones abortion. Let's grant that premise, okay? Even if that were true, it doesn't give us the right to practice abortion because God has the right as God who breathed all of us into existence to take life in situations where we do not. Do you remember God punishes David and Bathsheba after David commits adultery and murdered, murders Bathsheba's husband. He punishes them for their adultery, right? Still adultery by striking their son dead after he had already been born. David's son after birth struck dead by God. Wow, that's pretty gnarly consequences for your sin of adultery. But does that imply that we as humans have the right to willfully kill newborn infants and unborn infants as well? Of course not. So even if you grant the premise and assumption of the woke progressive Christian who's using this passage, it doesn't mean that we have that right as well. God is God. He doesn't really kill people. He just moves locations. He moves them to heaven. Finally, Numbers 531 is careful to explain that the man is free from guilt with regards to what happens to the guilty woman. And this is an important point, and we'll close with this on this passage. This means that whatever the curse entails, whether it leads to shriveling up the woman's womb or not, it is something that under other circumstances the man would be guilty for, right? It would be illegal for the man to have done it himself to try to give the woman a concoction to shrivel up her womb or cause a miscarriage. It's the sort of thing for which that man would normally be guilty if it happened. So if the passage we're describing, and if God causes a miscarriage in that passage, the passage would actually imply that we would be guilty if we were to do the same. Do you remember the end of this passage? It says, that he shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. Meaning whatever happens, the man is not held responsible for it. But in any other circumstance, we would be held responsible if we were to do the same. So even on the abortion advo advocate's interpretation of this passage, the passage not only does not condone abortion, but actually assumes that abortion is forbidden. Because if we had tried to carry this out on our own, apart from God's commandments for how it's to carry out, if we were trying to poison our wife because we suspect her of adultery, and through our actions we end up causing a miscarriage or barrenness or infertility, God would hold us accountable for trying to carry out that on our own, apart from the way that God told us to carry out that test for adultery. So meaning that, yeah, if you tried to do that yourself, you'd actually be guilty because you can't just do whatever you want. These were commands strictly from God. So the assumption actually is the opposite. It's not that this would condone abortion. It's that it would actually condemn abortion um, in any other context. So that's how we kind of think through Numbers 5, 11 through 31.
I hope that's helpful for you. You may hear this passage used to try to defend abortion. We're going to get to two more short passages in Hosea um, before we, we leave you today. But, but, but first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars and the pro-life movement, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted to support this show and help us reach more people. Uh, this is just a crowdfunding platform. We have fun uh, perks, right, tiers here for you, like energetic embryo, pro-life apologist, sassy since conception, and bane of choice. Each tier that you support the show at gives you different perks, access to me, and fun ways to connect with one another. This helps us expand our production value, reach more people, and begin bringing on a team with really high-level content and production and filming to be able to start creating conversational content on the streets where we put these ideas into a conversational format to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. So thank you guys for your support. Head over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show, guys. I want to close with just two uh, segments from Hosea that sometimes are used to try to defend abortion. And I, and I think we'll be able to uh, debunk and turn these on their head uh, quite quickly. So the first one is Hosea 9, 10 through 16. Hosea 9, 10 through 16, the passage of the chapter of which is called The Lord Will Punish Israel. Here's, here's what the segment reads, and then we'll talk about how they try to use it to to argue that the Bible condones or approves of abortion. It says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of their wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more, and their princes are rebels." Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. Okay, so pretty gnarly passage. Um, again, talking about the punishments and consequences from the Lord because of Israel's idolatry, Israel's disobedience, and Israel's defiance of God and his laws. So God is proclaiming curses against Israel and Ephraim. But God has unique authority over human life because he's the giver of human life, right? We, we are breathed out of dust, and to dust we shall return, right? We, we may live forever. We may end up in heaven or hell as eternal beings, but we will return to dust, and we're only here because God sustains us and allows us to. He has the ultimate authority. So just because God proclaims these curses that unborn children will be miscarried, doesn't then justify us now going in for abortions or funding abortions or defending abortions. God causing an unborn child to miscarry is actually not murder, not for God, because God can decide who to take whenever he wants. And according to Christianity, right, according to the gospel, we don't really die. We just change locations right? We will continue to go on living. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, if you're a Christian, which means 
you, right, you are present with the Lord and you will receive a new body one day, right? The dead shall rise first. Um, and so God doesn't really ever kill anyone because he's the one keeping them alive. He's the one who gave them life. He's just changing their locations, either to heaven or hell. That's not something we can do. That doesn't give us the authority, autonomy, right? Bodily autonomy or right to do so. If God chooses to take unborn babies or newborn babies to heaven before they're born or just after they're born, that's his prerogative. Just like God can strike David and Bathsheba's newborn son dead, <laughs> doesn't mean that we can go around killing infants. So this verse, this passage is a consequence, the consequences for the sins of Israel. But that doesn't mean we could go around killing people. Okay, so that should be pretty self-evident. And then the second passage in Hosea is Hosea 13, 16, just one verse. It says, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Uh, gnarly stuff. Gnarly stuff. More consequences for sin, for defying God. Because she has rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword and these things will happen. These are curses from God for rebellion, for rebelling against him. However, notice that these curses are actually not being performed by God, right? God is saying what is going to happen. They shall fall by the sword, right? That doesn't mean that God some, suddenly came down to earth and started wielding a sword. He's saying these are the physical, national, right, cultural, physical consequences that are going to happen because of your sin, and I'm going to allow them to happen. So these are predictive of what will happen to Samaria and Israel by others because of their sin. So this, once again, is descriptive. It's predictive, it's predicting what will happen, but it's not prescriptive. It's not saying, these are great things, you should all do this to one another. No, God's saying, this is what's going to happen to you now because of your defiance, rebellion, and disobedience to me, your hatred of me, your love of sin, your love of self, your love of sin. Um, that, that doesn't mean that we can do the same thing, and it doesn't mean that Scripture is condoning these actions as acceptable in any other situation or context. It's saying, this is what's going to happen to you now by others. I'm God. I see what's going to happen, and I'm going to let it happen as a punishment for your sin. So just because the Bible describes something doesn't mean it prescribes it or condones it. The, the first rule of good exegesis of Scripture or really of any type of historical document. So I hope debunking those three uh, Bible verses that allegedly defend abortion was helpful for you and they in fact show quite the opposite. So thanks for joining me today, guys. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. And if you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to SethGruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, which is filling up fast for the fall, or to book me for an event. I will be on vacation for the rest of July with my family, but if you'd like to book me in the last few Sundays I have available in the fall, you can contact me through sethgruber.com there, and someone will get back to you if I have any dates available and open left. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Until next month or next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs>